0: The following sermon was delivered to Christ Central Church in order to further our knowledge and adoration of who God is. We pray that it displays the hope found in Christ and strengthens your faith in Him. 1 Corinthians 15 follows a lengthy section we were in for a while in chapters 12 to 14 about the disorderly worship of the Corinthians. And Paul makes this transition at the beginning of, of chapter 15 and he reminds them of the gospel. Why? Why now? I mean, this is the second to last chapter of the whole book. Why has he just now reminded them of the gospel? Because he's getting to a a particular issue that's at the heart of the gospel, and that's some have denied the resurrection of the dead. We saw that in, in verse 12. And starting in verse 12, we see the implications of what happens if there is no resurrection of the dead. And so far, we're entering into our third section. So I would break up 12 to 19 and say if there is no resurrection, we fall apart theologically. Like our faith is, is vain if there is no resurrection. Then, as we, we learned last week, uh, verses 20 to 28 if there is no resurrection of the dead, we fall apart eschatologically. The eschaton, the end times, our future is uncertain. If there is no resurrection, what happens? And today, if there is no resurrection, we fall apart ethically. Our habits, our practices, our lives become senseless. No direction. We fall apart ethically. So when I say the word ethic, what what do I mean? Uh, Ethics seeks to answer the question, how should we live? What should we do with our lives or with our actions? What informs the way we move about in the world? I was thinking about this I have been messed up for the past couple of weeks after watching a documentary called The Dawn Wall. Has anybody seen this on Netflix? Okay, my brother and sister-in-law are kind of big climbers, um, more so in the past than they are now. They have a, a foster child now, it's kind of taking some time away from them, but the guys on this documentary are insane, absolutely insane. Uh, El Cap, a wall, 3,000 sheer vertical cliff in Yosemite National Park, um, guys climb it all the time. Sometimes you use ropes. There's even a guy named Alex Honnold who doesn't use ropes at all when he's climbing this thing. 3,000 feet in the air. Uh, in fact, I think he climbed it three times in one day. Uh, he's, he's insane. But the Dawn Wall is the story of the first, the first couple of guys to do something called free climbing, which is, as you're climbing your way up the wall, there are no ropes ahead of you. As you go, you set your anchors in the wall. So if you fall, it catches you. Uh, you still get slammed against the face of the wall, but at least you don't fall all the way to the ground. But Alex Honnold, the guy I mentioned, is a free solo climber mostly. And free solo versus free climbing is no ropes whatsoever. The only thing you have is your hands and maybe a chalk bag to help your grip. Um, and I saw, I saw an interview with him uh, a few nights ago that said, if he, w- he, he admitted if he was to choose a style of climbing for the rest of his life, it would not be free soloing. Why? Because when you're free soloing, you have to be so careful. The first mistake, you die. And it's so methodical and thought out and, and careful that he feels like he can't push himself, right? Free solo or free climbing, when he has a rope attached, he says he can do whatever he wants to because the rope is going to catch him. And I was thinking about this in terms of the resurrection. The resurrection really informs how we climb our wall or how we live our lives. Like if there is no resurrection, if we fall, it's hopeless. If there is a resurrection and we fall, there's a, there's a rope to catch us, right? There is hope. And when we know the outcome of ac- our actions is sure and certain, we can live our lives in a different way, right? And we're going to see that as we, mor- as we work through this passage I'm going to be focused on three things, break this section uh, up into three three smaller parts. So the resurrection informs everything we do. First, we're going to see the resurrection provides the basis for our baptism. See that in verse 29. Secondly, the resurrection makes sense of our suffering, verses 30 to 32. And lastly, the resurrection gives meaning to our morality, verses 33 and 34. So let's start in the beginning. The resurrection provides the basis of our baptism. It seeks to answer the question, why are we baptized? Why are we baptized? And I'm going to go ahead and ask you early on, this is, the first, this is really the only time we're going to have to really put on our scholarly thinking caps. Uh, I feel like this passage is like the red-headed stepchild of 1 Corinthians 15. No offense if you have a red-headed stepchild. I'm sure they're a very lovely child. Um, we, just, we don't really talk about this verse a lot. If, if, unless we preach methodically through a book of the Bible, you're going to skip this passage. It's hard. Why are people baptized on behalf of the dead? What the heck that means is, is somewhat unattainable. And what I want to do this morning is give you just a couple of different interpretations and tell you why both of them are okay. And you can remain confident in the Word of God depending on which side you fall on, but that the, the overall meaning of Paul's uh, argument is perfectly clear, right? Okay, caps on. Interpreters have come up with over 40 different possible interpretations for this. We're gonna go over all 40 of them. I'm completely kidding. Uh, a couple of common ones are baptized on behalf of the dead. On behalf of is this is a Greek word that can also be translated above or over, and they thought that maybe what Christians were doing was baptizing people on top of grave sites, as a, it's kind of just like a symbolic, but if you think of baptism by immersion, and they didn't have movable pools back then, it doesn't really make a whole lot of sense. Um, another option is on behalf of the dead, which was with their dead relatives in mind. So in other words, my, my child has died, and was a believer, and I want to be with them in heaven when I die as well, so I'm going to be baptized on behalf of their dead for my salvation. Um, Again, there's some major problems with this. Uh, It doesn't line up with Pauline theology, um, and it's just kind of putting more more words in Paul's mouth than actually is here. So the two most likely, those two are pretty common, but the two most likely interpretations, number one is vicarious baptism. Proxy baptism, baptism in the place of somebody else. As if you weren't baptized and you died, and after your death, I am baptized on your behalf to ensure your salvation. That's, that's a very, very common interpretation of this, but there's a few difficulties. Number one, there is no evidence that this happened at the time of Paul. You move a century later, and we see people doing this. You move to our day and age, this is, this is a practice in the Mormon church today baptism on behalf of the dead. And uh, I tried to talk to somebody who is familiar with uh, Mormon theology to ask them if they've ever come across it. Sometimes we say, yeah, somebody practices this, but you go talk to somebody in that faith and they say, I have no idea what you're talking about. Um, I wanted to see how, but it's in their doctrine. Um, so I, I, would, I would wager that it's, it comes from this verse and in this verse alone. Uh, there's no evidence for it. Number two, it doesn't agree with Paul's theology, and he doesn't really push back against it. Like He doesn't say, baptism on behalf of the dead, even though that's stupid, this is the reason why they do it. He just kind of breezes by it. But I will say, he, look at the language there. He uses third person. What do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? Why are people baptized on their behalf? He distances himself from it. He doesn't say why are we baptized on behalf of the dead? Why are Christians? He just says people. Um, make make of that what you will. And the last problem is why does Paul use a practice of other people to argue for what the Corinthians believe? So in other words, if this isn't something they're doing, why would how does it carry any weight for them? Like why are people baptized on behalf of the dead? And the Corinthians, if they're not doing this, would say, I don't know, they're dumb. That's not what we're doing, so why, why bring it up? Where I fall, but the main strength of that one is that a plain reading of the text, this is what it sounds like is going on, I'm being baptized on behalf of the dead. It, like Grammatically, it makes perfect sense. Where I kind of fall, um, maybe 75% in this camp, is that on behalf of kind of carries the weight of on account of, and I'll tell you why. Um, First of all, it's consistent with Pauline theology, and the dead in 1 Corinthians 15 always refers to the dead in Christ, not just the dead in general, like all dead people, which means um, that to be baptized on behalf of the dead means to be baptized with a view of joining those who are already dead in Christ right? One, one uh, commentator, he paraphrased the verse, and I, and I think it's really helpful. So, you know how the message is like a paraphrase? Um, don't use it as your main translation, but it's, it's somebody's interpretation, and this is like a messagized version of this verse, and I find it very helpful. He, he would, he would um, translate it in an interpretation as, now, if there is no resurrection of the dead, what will be accomplished by those who get baptized, Because of what they have heard about how our dead will be raised on behalf of the dead. If the dead are not raised at all, why are people undergoing baptism on account of them? So people are being baptized because they've heard about what happens to the dead in Christ, how they're raised to life, and they're baptized on account of that on their behalf. Paul's overall point. Take that, wrestle with it, continue searching, talk about it. Paul's overall point. If the dead are not raised, baptism is meaningless. Completely meaningless. He may be using an aberrant practice of being baptized vicariously, or he may be talking about baptism to join the dead in Christ. Either way, his point is, baptism points to a future resurrection, and without it, it's meaningless. It doesn't make any sense. And this is true because baptism is the foundational practice of the Christian life. Read with me Romans 6, 3 to 11. It says, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead... By the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with Him in a death like His, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. We know that our old self was crucified with Him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For no one who has died has been set free from sin, or for one who has died has been set free from sin. Baptism is done looking back at Christ's death, being united with him in his death, but baptism is done in the, for the future expectation of a resurrection just like Christ. And it doesn't make any sense if that's not our expectation. It's meaningless. So the resurrection provides basis for our baptism, but the resurrection also makes sense of our suffering. This is where we're going to spend most of our time this morning. Um, it's, it's the largest part of, of the passage, and it's, it's, the most, um, it's the one that we probably struggle with the most, too. It seeks to answer the question, why do we willingly face danger, discomfort, and even death as Christians? If the dead are not raised, why should we endure suffering and risk our lives? This is why Paul, he says in verse 30, Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus if the dead are not raised? Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. When Paul says we, he's most often talking about the apostles. Um, But what we're going to draw out of this text is a sense of what it means for the rest of us as we follow Christ. Uh, And and I want to talk about two aspects of death and danger that Paul talks about here. Number one is more physical. In in Paul's next letter to the Corinthians, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, you've probably heard this text before, he kind of catalogs his tribulations and trials that he's gone through in his ministry. He writes, Are they servants of Christ? I am a better one. I'm talking like a madman with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, Countless beatings, often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea, on frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city. Danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. You read through the book of Acts, like we did a, a few years ago, chapter 14. Paul is in Lystra, and he gets he's stoned, near death, dragged out of the city because they thought he was dead. They left him for dead but God sustained him. Like if you're, if you're trying to tell people to become Christians, you don't read this passage. It's, it's not very convincing that you're, you're going to have the blessed life that most people promise when it comes to our faith. There, there is a physicality to the danger and death that Paul's talking about here. Right? You, you see that. It's, it's, not, it's not hyperbole. It really happened in his life. The second aspect to the danger of death That he's he's talking about here is more spiritual. So Paul had not literally died every day as he talks about in verse 31. I die every day. So what does he mean? Earlier in the letter, 1 Corinthians 4 verses 8 to 13, he kind of talks about it a little bit. Talking to the Corinthians, already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. hour we hunger and thirst we are poorly dressed unbuffeted buffeted and homeless and we labor working with our own hands when reviled we bless when persecuted we endure when slandered we entreat we have become and are still like the scum of the world the refuse of all things it's not very it's not a very pleasant life That Paul is describing here. But he endures. Why? As Galatians 2.20 tells us. It's no longer through our faith that we put in Christ. It's no longer we who live. But Christ who lives in us. Paul is demonstrating that here. He is put to death through baptism the old man. And he is raised to walk in newness of life. But not as Paul. But as Christ in Paul's flesh. So what does it take to live the Christian life? Daily death. Daily death. Jesus said so in Luke's gospel. Chapter 9. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. Take up his cross daily. Follow me. To fight this fight of our faith requires the Christian to die every day. To take up the cross of Christ as your own. Each and every day. It means both to put yourself at risk, even physically, whatever that may look like, but also for the sake of the gospel, to live a cruciform life. Cruciform life, shaped by and lived in the light of the cross. Because there, Christ purchased you with his blood. And we are not our own. This does not mean that we seek suffering. This does not mean that We smile at suffering and just walk into it hoping that we get beat up or stoned or shipwrecked or made fun of, whatever it may be. That's not the point, is to seek after it. But it does mean we willingly endure it and expectantly endure it. All who um, want to live a holy life should expect suffering If you're following Christ, suffering unavoidably follows you. Why? To make much of Christ. That's why we suffer. To make much of Christ. Look how Paul says it here. Um, I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. Paul is boasting in how he puts himself in, in the path of harm. Paul is boasting in, himself, boasting in the fact that he doesn't dress well. He doesn't have a lot of money. He doesn't have a lot of safety and security. He doesn't have a 401k or a two-story house with a security system. He doesn't have these things. And it's not, look at me. What does he say here? By my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Why is Paul boasting in what he does and does not have? to make much of Christ. This is so easy when we're persecuted and when we're reviled and when we make sacrifices on behalf of our faith that it boosts our egos and it inflates our pride. It's so hard to avoid that. Um, But what Paul is saying is, may his boast ever be in the Lord. Our lives should look strange to the world Not so that they can look at us and think, wow, how strange are you? But because they can look at Christ and say, wow, how great and glorious is he? We're all seeking to gain something in our lives, right? That's why we do what we do. And Paul says in the next verse, what do I gain by fighting with the beast at Ephesus, humanly speaking? Everything we do in our life is seeking to gain something. What, what Paul, he asks us to put on some glasses, right? To look through the lens of the world. To look from a perspective of somebody who thinks this is all there is and there is no resurrection. Humanly speaking, is there any gain to what he does? And the, the obvious answer that he expects is no. There is no gain. Because what kind of profit is it to you if you put your life on the line and die for something that isn't true? Right? If you lose your life at an early stage because you were preaching a gospel that has no bearing in reality. right? It's just a fairy tale. There is there is no prophet at all. And when Paul's talking about fighting with the beast at Ephesus here, we have no record of him actually fighting with beasts. I honestly think that Paul probably wasn't a very good fighter. If you read through the book of Acts, when he goes to Ephesus, a riot breaks out. Uh, he encounters some opposition to his teaching and some hardships there. Uh, I'm not sure if this is exactly what he's pointing to, but the point is this was an expression used to fight with beasts. It was was a rhetorical expression used to talk about the great opposition you face in your ministry. He faced great opposition. And the, the, the question he's asking is, why would he do that if there is no resurrection? So the question for us is, why do you do what you do if there is a resurrection? Why do you live the life that you live if you say you believe in the resurrection? So what does your life testify to as gain? We can look at our lives and say what we consider benefit, what we're, what we're driven to achieve. But would a non believer be able to examine your life and think, what a shame? I pity you. I, I, I think you're missing out. Remember in, in, in verse 19 if the hope of the resurrection is not true, we are pit of all people most to be pitied. Could somebody look at your life and say, what a pity? call you fool. And they're right. If there is no resurrection, but was Paul a fool for risking his life? Yes, if there is no resurrection. Was Lottie Moon a fool for giving away her food and finances in China to work to spread the gospel among a people group that she didn't know and had no attachment to without Christ? Yes, she was a fool if there is no resurrection. Are and Taylor fools for taking a brand new degree, four year degree from Montevallo? Saying this is nice. Yes, they are fools if there is no resurrection. So what is our mantra if there is no resurrection? Let's eat, drink, be merry, because tomorrow we die. And this this may sound victorious. This may sound like a a chant, like, eat, drink, this is going to be awesome. But this is a quotation from Isaiah 22, a passage where God's people are in war. They're besieged by the Assyrian army. They have no hope. Let's eat and drink. Like, whatever we have left, let's just consume it. We have no hope. Hope. Let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. It, it reeks of hopelessness. The end has come. Nothing matters anymore. Let's just enjoy these last few moments. Is this the Christian ethic? Is this what the resurrection leads to? No, the, the Christian ethic is not seize the day. The Christian ethic is long for the day. It's not carpe diem. It's, as we see in the very next chapter, 1 Corinthians 16, 22, our Lord come. It's this uh, Greek transliteration of an Aramaic phrase that says maranatha. O Lord, come. Not carpe diem, but Maranatha. Philippians 3, look at verse 7. Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Jump down to verse 10. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection, may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Paul's point here. If the dead in Christ are not raised our suffering is senseless. There is no point. If the dead in Christ are in fact raised, there is sense to our suffering. Great sense. The resurrection provides the basis for our baptism. The resurrection makes sense of our suffering. Even though the world won't be able to see it, we'll know The world should be able to look at us and say, what fools? But the resurrection also gives meaning to our morality. Why we choose what we do, what we consider good and bad and right and wrong. The resurrection gives meaning to that. Paul starts off by by quoting... Something that was probably circulating in their culture—a phrase like we have—we all say it, and then we think about it. I don't really know where that came from. I know what it means. I don't know who started it. Uh, But he says, "Bad company ruins good morals." Um, We know this comes from a Roman—a Roman Roman writer's uh, play. But before that, was a Greek philosopher. This this, This is common knowledge. That Paul is quoting to show them how crazy they are in their thinking that bad company is okay to keep without ruining their morals. Uh, everybody knows this. You don't have to be a Christian to know this. If you choose to live one way and you live amongst people and let, let yourselves be influenced by a people who believe another way, you're going to be influenced. You don't have to be a Christian to, to realize that. Bad company ruins good morals. I actually had someone text me, um, a student at the college text me earlier this semester saying, Jacob, why does it it matter that we hang around church people? Why does it matter that our friends come from the church or are Christians? Why can't I hang out with who I want to hang out with and just believe what I want to believe? It's a good question. Um, What she was really pushing back on is the fact that are we simply just a product of who we're around? So it's just arbitrary. Or is there a reason to choose who we, cha- who we uh, keep company with? And the answer falls down to, well, what's the truth of how we should live? We decide on the truth of how we should live, and then we, we keep the company of the people who will influence us even further and deeper into that truth, right? If there is no truth to how we live, if there is no meaning, if there is no resurrection, it doesn't matter how we live. So yeah, it is an arbitrary choice. Choose whoever you're going to hang around because you're just, you'll just become a product of that. And it doesn't really matter. But the resurrection gives meaning to our morality. But Paul's warning is to do not be deceived. Okay? This actually echoes a couple of other times he talked about this in the letter. We're just going to look at one. 1 Corinthians 6, 9. He says, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. In other words, there were people within the congregation at Corinth who are teaching the fact that God really doesn't take sexual immorality very seriously. And and your eternal inheritance is actually pretty safe because it's really not that big of a deal, sexual immorality. And Paul says, do not be deceived. The same is true here because who is the bad company? That Paul talks about here. Who is the bad company that's going to ruin our morals? It's not people who just act crazy. Who sin. It's people who deny the resurrection. That's the bad company that Paul is warning us about. And because they deny the resurrection, they are probably behaving improperly. But the main root of the problem is, is they don't believe in the resurrection. That's what makes them bad company. Why are they denying the resurrection? We'll talk about this later on in in 1 Corinthians 15, but it's probably based on philosophical grounds. The idea of bodily resurrection according to Greek philosophy kind of seemed ridiculous. But to deny the ability of God to resurrect the dead through Christ is to ignore what has already occurred in Jesus, It's to deny Christ's resurrection, and it's also to place limitations on the power and purpose of God. If we are not headed to the resurrection, the word of God is a lie. And, and God is not able. To deny that is a serious blasphemy against God. These are the people that Paul warns us to, um, to not keep company with. It reminds me of Mark twelve twenty four. Remember the Sadducees, this religious sect in Israel that denied the resurrection? And Jesus says that they deny the resurrection because they know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. They don't believe it's, it's possible. Greek philosophy would say, no, you can't put somebody back together after they've been dead, buried in the ground, disintegrated. What? And why would you? The body is not something that's good. Our spirit is good. This denies the purpose of God. What does he want to do? He wants to create a people for his glory, people that have bodies. In the future, they'll be glorified for his purpose. He doesn't want disembodied souls. To deny the resurrection is to miss the power and purpose of God. But if you're like me, you ask this question, like bad company. Paul himself, earlier in the letter, 1 Corinthians 5, says, do not associate with the sexual immoral. Not the sexually immoral of the world, but the ones within the church. And he's saying, it's okay to associate with the sexually immoral of the world. In order not to associate with them, you would have to live in a different world. He said, you might as well take yourself out of the world, and you can't do that. So Paul's not arguing to completely avoid all immoral and idolatrous people. And we shouldn't withdraw from the world from fear of falling into immorality. He also made the case earlier that eating with idol worshipers is not necessarily bad. You should be very wise in how you approach this topic. But to eat meat sacrificed to idols does not constitute sin unless in your conscience it's sin. Right? Right? So this implies that you're actually, uh, there's a possibility of you reclining at table with idolaters, right? Association with non-believers. And it also brings up the question, who, who did Jesus keep company with again? Like, Did he remove himself from all sinners and tax collectors and prostitutes? No, he interacted with these people. So what is the thrust of what Paul is arguing here, warning them of keeping company with with people who are going to corrupt their morals? He's just saying, be thoughtful about the company you keep. Be wary of who you allow to influence you and influence the way you believe and act. And be careful as you walk in the world not to become of the world. That's it. If, if these are your closest compadres and they don't believe a single thing that you believe, be concerned. This is why church membership and fellowship is absolutely essential. Like You, you want to know how people start to lose their grounding of their hope in Christ is when they lose fellowship with Christ's people. That's, that's where it starts. Be careful who you keep company with. This, this last, the verses 33 to 34, is Paul's way of answering the question, why do we live the way we live? And how this is informed by the resurrection. And the answer is, we live the way we live because we know the power of God prominently displayed in the resurrection. We know the power of God prominently displayed in the resurrection. He says it like this, wake up from your drunken stupor as is right and do not go on sinning. Do not go on sinning. Sober up. Drunkenness really boils down to having no rhyme or reason to what you do or say. You have no control. You just, like you're, you're not in control of what you say or do anymore when you're drunk. You're just stumbling around with no meaning or purpose or direction. That's the picture that Paul is painting of the Corinthians. If you don't have the resurrection to guide your choices, there is no resurrection. There is no meaning to our morality. You're stumbling around in the dark, just looking for something to do with no direction. But if there is a resurrection, we have great meaning. So what actually wakes someone up? What sobers them up? What gives purpose to our actions so that we aren't meaninglessly wandering through life? a revelation of God's power. If you see a formerly dead man walking, don't you think that would wake you up? Like, wow, there's, there's something going on here. And I think this is going to have great implications for how I live my life. Wake up from your, dr- your drunken stupor. And then he says this interesting phrase. For some have no knowledge of God. At first glance, it might seem like the way you live your life influences the possibility of evangelizing people. So some have no knowledge of God. The way you live your life could give them knowledge of God. That is very true. That is very true. I don't think that's what Paul is getting at here. The some who don't have knowledge of God points back to verse 12, the some that say there is no resurrection of the dead. In other words... Denying the resurrection of the dead just shows, you, shows me that you have no knowledge of who God is. Right? And what a blow to the, the Corinthians' ego. All through the, the beginning half, they're, they're the wise ones. They're the powerful. They have knowledge. We all possess knowledge. They're puffed up in their egos and prides. Paul says, some of you don't have any knowledge. Some of you guys don't know anything. He even says, I say this to your shame. Like that is supposed to knock them out of their uh, drunken state. To know God and his power gives meaning to our morality. It helps us decide what to do, how to live, what's right and wrong. Think of the atheist. Is it possible for an atheist to be a moral person? Yes, it is. Does their morality make logical sense with their worldview? There's no reason to act how they act except for the fact that they decided to act that way, arbitrarily. The resurrection provides us with a worldview that directs our our morality, why we choose what we do, why we choose what we don't do. The resurrection offers guidance for that. And to close this point, this shows us that the resurrection... And what's going on to deny the resurrection at Corinth is not just a belief issue. It's a sin issue. Belief issues manifest themselves as as sin. This is why we at Christ Central prioritize the preaching of doctrine. False doctrine, in this case denying the resurrection, has led to sin. Some might accuse our church of preaching too much doctrine... Not practical enough. I I believe that's a false dichotomy. To preach doctrine informs how you should live. Doctrine is unavoidably practical. It applies, it's the truth about the way the world is and who God is. How could that not be more applicable to how we live our lives? It's not that we don't care about ethics and morality, but we see ethics and morality as the direct result of doctrine. What we believe informs how we behave. Orthodoxy leads to orthopraxy. This is why Paul spends the large portion of his letter offering a clearer, fuller understanding of God and his holiness. He says, What's the fix to the problem at Corinth? Knowing God. Knowing who God is. I can tell you don't know who it is because of how who he is because of how you live your life. Uh, I saw a footnote. This this week, um, uh, just in studying from uh, a theologian, early 20th century theologian, and Karl Barth, who who suggests that these words, for some, have no knowledge of God, ought to be emblazoned on the steps to our pulpit. Why? Because pastors need to be reminded every time that not to have knowledge of God makes everything vain and empty. Vain and empty. If I'm sinning, don't just tell me what to do. Tell me who God is. Our biggest problem in life is that we don't know God well enough or at all. And only when we know Him rightly can we live rightly. The resurrection provides the basis for our baptism. Without the resurrection, our our, our faith is, is vain. The resurrection makes sense of our suffering. The resurrection gives meaning to our morality. And the sad part is many of us probably sit here this morning thinking how stupid the Corinthian church is. How could they not believe in the resurrection? The gospel is based on the fact that Christ arose from the dead. We're going to be celebrating that in just a couple weeks. How could they be so clueless? Because we, on the other hand, we believe the resurrection, don't we? We sing about it in our worship songs we preach about it for goodness sake it's the whole reason why everybody looks like easter eggs when they show up on easter sunday like we we believe the resurrection right but the truth is when it comes down to it our eyes our lives often don't don't look exactly like our our lives often look exactly like the corinthians who denied the resurrection our beliefs might be different but our lives often appear very similar. Eat, drink, be merry. Tomorrow we, die. Tomorrow we die. Avoid all suffering and danger. Security, safety, that's the most important thing. If it's too risky, don't, don't even think about it. It's not worth the risk. Just, just pursue your dreams and, and live your best life Now. Because who knows what's going to happen. And here's the danger of glossing over this passage too quickly. We think we're okay if we simply believe the resurrection. But the truth is belief is much more the intellectual agreement that Christ has risen from the dead. Which means you're not off the hook as long as you believe in the resurrection. You must also live like it. That's the question that Paul is begging The resurrection informs our ethic. Why we do what we do. So what do you do? How do you live your life? Is it congruent with the truth of the resurrection? Can the world look at you and say, this guy must know something I don't know. This lady must believe in something I don't believe in. Because they are fools for living how they live. Or does your life make complete sense to the non-believer? Can they look at you and actually be jealous of what you have? Not jealous because you have a healthy marriage. Not jealous because you love your kids well, your, your friends well. But jealous because you spend your finances in a weird way. You give. Because you spend your time in a weird way. With, with kids at a Disciple Now. That they're going to be difficult to corral. With the fact that you would take a degree and go to another country where it, it means nothing. It means absolutely nothing. Does like, the world look at us and say, you must know something that I don't? And what is that something that we know? It's the power of the resurrection. Thank you for listening to this Christ Central Church sermon series. To find our gathering location and more sermons, visit ChristCentralChurch.net